Welcome back to Crazy Fate Talk. I'm Sarah. I'm Steve. And I'm Erica. And uh, folks, we are excited that uh, you are joining us for this episode. We're continuing our series looking at siblings, brothers, and sisters, their rivalries and reversals in the Bible. We spent an awful lot of time in uh, those kind of family situations, as messy as they were in the Old Testament. And that leads us today. Erica, where are we headed today? Well, today we're going to the New Testament. Hooray! And we're handling the one story um, out of this series that we're going to be talking about with siblings where we don't have names for our siblings because it's not a specific set of siblings that we're speaking of, but we're talking about one of the parables of Jesus. Um, but if we're going to talk about, about this parable, we have to talk about the parables that come before us. So we're in Luke chapter 15, and we're talking about the lost parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. Um, Thanks for clarifying that when we say the lost parables, it's not like uh, a, a, a secret long lost album of like deep cuts of Jesus. It's it's not like the the lost gospel of Thomas or those like weird mm-hmm. Gnostic gospels. These are three stories Jesus tells. They're all about either lost things or animals or people. So in the, in these parables, like we said, you have, um, let me get these in the correct order. You have the lost sheep, which you know, we know these parables, the lost sheep, the, the farmer has a hundred sheep. He loses one. He goes out and he searches for it. Then you have the short parable of the woman who has 10 silver coins. She loses one. She tears her house apart looking for it. And then of course we have um, the, the father who has two sons, one of which decides to take his inheritance and skip town and eventually comes back. And the father celebrates him, which makes the older brother angry. Um, so part of the reason for us including all these together is because, well, first off, they're all included in the same chapter. They're all kind of dealing with the same theme. But we tend to celebrate, and we were talking about this before we started recording, we tend to celebrate more the lost sheep and the lost coin than we do the lost son. And it, it seems like part of that is the a, a, a lost sheep or, or a lost coin can't break your heart again you know like the the the, there's there's a there's a real beauty in the way these stories are arranged in luke and whether that's because jesus told them all back to back to back and intended it in this order or luke put these together for us there's a a beauty in even even the the mathematical ratios the first story is a one out of a hundred the second now we're one out of ten and then finally it's one out of two Mm -hmm. sons that there's like a an intensity that that increases and also maybe even a um a sense of, of value or preciousness in that like in the, in the first parable about a hundred sheep, if you raise animals, you know, there's going to be a certain amount of loss because sheep die because not only sometimes do they die getting lost or getting sick, but you eat them and th- that's how it works. And sheep make more sheep that if you lose one, it's okay. More sheep will make more sheep. If you just hold on to the 99 yet, Jesus says, Nope, you go after the one that's lost. The, the one out of 10 coins is a limited resource, but you still got nine. But when you're down to one out of two sons, that son, if indeed you reconcile with him, he can blow it all over and he can break your heart. He can keep you know hurting you. When we talked last time about the tensions like King David had between his sons, um, 
Absalom kept causing him problems. I mean, like, like you reconcile once, and then there's more and more trouble. Uh, that, like that, that seems to be in the background. That uh, if if you dare to forgive, if you dare to, am I going to celebrate uh, a lost son coming home? There's the possibility they'll blow it all over again. And Jesus seems to like relish that. Yep. There is a risk. And, of course, Jesus is going to make the move to say that's how God's love works. God keeps willing to get God's heart broken day after day after day by us. Um, and yet God's willing to celebrate it for us. But, yeah, the, the way those three parables hang together, they, they help interpret each other, I think. But they also mm-hmm. build toward that climax. Maybe it's even helpful, too, for us just for a moment to, to think about that third parable about the man with two sons. And and to think about it as a story about a lost and found son before we immediately label it the prodigal son. Like we're most of us church folk are used to hearing that, oh, that's the story of the prodigal son. Prodigal being one of those lesser used words that means wasteful. Um, and he gets labeled the wasteful son because he takes his share of the inheritance and wastes it all. Um when Jesus doesn't use that word to describe him in the story, and that seems like it makes the point of the story that wastefulness is a sin and makes it about don't do this bad behavior instead of really being a parable about the graciousness of the father in the story or the God who welcomes back uh, the the lost. And that, again, that seems like it's turning this story into like an old goofus and gallant morality play. Don't be like this bad person, be like this good person. And that's not really the point of how the story gets told. This, this parable, um, was used when I was in seminary in my preaching class to kind of help illustrate how context, like our context and where we're reading the story from is very important. Um, Because like all of these things happen to the lost son after he leaves, you know, he, he takes his share of the inheritance, which shouldn't have been his yet. And he goes to a foreign country. He spends it unwisely uh, and then there's a famine in the land um, and he is forced to work as a, um, like the only job he can find is feeding pigs, which is not something a good Jewish man should do. And it, with this parable, um, there was some theologian or professor or somebody who asked a bunch of people from a, from different parts of the world what caused the man's poverty? And, you know, North Americans tended to say, oh, it's because he uh, wasted his money on um, parties and prostitutes and whatever else he did to with wild living. Like it was his fault for spending his inheritance unwisely. Um, uh, Russians were would say, Oh, it's because there was a famine in the land. Um, you know, even if he had money, he wouldn't have been able to buy food because there was no food. And, um, you know, somebody else, like I think in, uh, a man from Africa replied, oh, it's because the community didn't help him. That, you know, he he was, you know, hungry and the community did not feed him. Yeah. Um, so like, all of these different contexts like that we kind of read these stories from tend to help shape how we read these stories because of our own life experiences. 
And that that's really important to, to mention in a story like this, because all three of those factors are there in the biblical text itself. But mm-hmm. it, we, we get real comfortable with just one particular lens. And then when we label the story, especially even titling in our Bibles in English, oh, this is the prodigal son. Um, that sort of makes a, an interpretive decision right off the bat. Oh, you're supposed to filter out that nobody gave him anything. You're supposed to filter out the famine. Forget that. It's a, it's the thing. He wasn't a wise investor. He foolishly managed, you know, mismanaged the money that he had um, that like that, that skews what you think the parable is about. If you're automa- if you're told from the beginning, this is a story about a son who's wasteful with money, who's not a good investor when that's one of three contributing factors. Um, and, uh, maybe a deeper question. How, how would we get at what Luke, the gospel writer, wants us to focus on? The context of these, the two stories about lostness beforehand gives us context. And, you know, maybe it's not about blaming him I- entirely for being wasteful in his money. That's a piece of it. But uh, this is about the lost being found and reclaimed again. This is not a you shouldn't be a bad money manager story. Like there's other places in the Bible to hear the lesson don't be wasteful with your money. The point of this story is not primarily that. My guess is too, that anybody in Jesus' original audience, you know, good uh, Torah listening uh, Jewish men and women would have heard echoes of their own storytelling of their own national history in the story about two sons who squabble and uh, one who goes, the younger one who goes running off, making a lot of wealth from, and like that echoes Jacob and Esau. That echoes a lot of the stories we've been looking at leading up to this conversation today in this series. That throughout the story of Israel in the Hebrew Scriptures, you get these siblings where there's tension between them, and there's a reversal, and the younger one sort of becomes the the focus for a while, even though they totally blow it, like. Everybody who would have heard Jesus tell the story would have said, oh, he's retelling our story. Yeah, and I think that's one of the cool things about Jesus' parables that he he does frequently is he he takes these well-known stories that his audience would know and he, he kind of uses it to make to make a point. Um, an- another thing that we as preachers often ask of our audience is, who do you identify with in this story? And, um, you know, I think at least a lot of preachers, we tend to identify with the older son, mm-hmm. you know, the one who stayed, the one who was faithful. And, um, but there are certainly people who are going to identify with the younger son, those who were wayward for a while and now have found their way back home. And I think it's important to realize that for the nation of Israel, It was not, you know, Esau was the older son. Esau was the one who stayed home and took care of his mother and um, buried his father. Jacob was the one who left and who, you know, had to find his way home again. And it is Jacob who is the founder of Israel. And I, I think part of the beauty, the genius about what Jesus does in this story, knowing that, that his hearers are at first going to f- have to hear themselves as like this younger son, is that part of, it seems a part of what Jesus does by the end of the story when he zooms into the older brother who's throwing a hissy fit because he doesn't want to come and celebrate, is that this is sort of spoken against the respectable religious people 
who are now upset that Jesus is welcoming those no good, you know, rotten sinners. And Jesus forces them to go, you're like the younger son. In so many ways, you've been shown mercy when you were stinkers. And now you're acting like jerks when God's showing mercy to other people. There's something jarring in that to Jesus hearers and probably to us as well, especially if you're at a churchgoer or respectable religious professional like we are who like to imagine, you know, we're the the good uh, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts uh, doing Jesus' will to see, oh man, there's ways that we get upset when those no good sinners get welcomed and that we're the ones who, are, who, who need to get smacked upside the head in love by Jesus too. I mean, all that kind of says to me that like the the parables are a lot more powerful than I think we usually give them credit for, or at least uh, in in ordinary conversation in church life, we sort of treat them like they're Aesop's fables, like that a parable has one point, it's got one moral at the end, you learn the lesson and that's it, you can ditch the story. When I think Jesus is doing something a lot more powerful because he he sort of lures us in, like you say, Sarah, with, with tropes or characters or plots that were familiar and you think, oh, I know how this story is going to go. And then Jesus yanks the rug out from under us, almost like the punchline of a joke, except it's not so much that it's funny so much as it makes me rethink everything I've ever thought about the world and God and myself. So even though this story starts with what seems familiar, maybe in that, oh, it's one more story about siblings who don't get along. Oh, it's one more story about a, a family with conflict. And you know, by this point in our series, we've heard you know six or seven of those so far. Um, Jesus uses this in a way to call attention to something about the character of God. And even if it's upsetting, even if you find yourself sympathizing with the older brother going, well, don't I matter? Aren't I important too? Jesus then speaking through the father in the story says, of course, I love you both, but your your brother is the one who is in trouble these days. Your brother was the one who was gone. Your, your brother was lost and now he's found. He was dead and now he's alive again. Of course, we have to celebrate. Um, and that it's uncomfortable uh, to, to, to hear those words. If you like to uh, cast yourself as the older brother going, don't I matter too? Don't all your sons matter? Yeah. Cause you know, the, the, I think that moment when the older son throws a little bit of a tantrum, I think it should make us uncomfortable. Yeah. I because think yeah, in, in that moment, like, I have a brother. I I can, like, see myself. I can hear myself having said that before to my parents, um, you know, accusing my parents of playing favorites when really they were just at that moment showing more attention and love to my brother. But that because at that moment, he needed it more than I did. Yeah. That doesn't take away that their love and care to me. It's just at that moment, my brother needed, needed more than I did. Right. His need was greater. I remember years ago, long, long time ago, knowing a family, big old family, lots of, you know, brothers and sisters and cousins. They're all close family. And somebody had come through a struggle with addiction in the family. And there was a real tension that rippled across the whole family network about like, why are we so excited that this person got sober? Because all the rest of us didn't have this addiction problem and you know, none of the rest mm-hmm. of us had this. And it's like, I mean, it, 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 if I'm at, I found myself thinking the, the same thing the father says in the story about like when, when this person who is dead to you is alive again, when this person was lost and now is found again, you have to celebrate and that it's not celebrating them is to say, 
you don't matter. It's to say you weren't on the brink of death and it is a, is a thing worth celebrating. It's worth spending the time and attention on this person's recovery and them getting well again. And I get it. It, it feels, it can feel like you're being rejected or that you're not important if we're not throwing a big party for you. But, um, you have to be excited when somebody's dead and brought to life again. You have to be excited when somebody's lost and found again. And when somebody is in deep need, that's where the, the resource and the attention goes. Like I, I have this recurring conversation with, with people when I get called to the hospital, especially to the emergency room. And we often find ourselves sitting in one of those waiting rooms in the emergency room going like, when are, we, when are they going to get to us? And we have to have this conversation over and over again about like, if you got bumped in line at the emergency room, it's good news for you because it means that you're not as dire as somebody else that they had to like whose life or death. So is it frustrating sometimes to have to wait? Yeah. But the person who's bleeding out, yep, they need to get the attention first. And me and my, you know, splinter in my finger, I can wait. Um, and it's maybe actually good news for me if I'm not the most dire emergency situation right now. Uh, they, they think I can handle it at the moment. That, that says to me also something powerful about the way Jesus ends this, this story. And um, not, not like spoiler alert, but like, so the, the lost son who's wasted the money and ends up feeding pigs comes back uh, to dad. He's got this whole little speech rehearsed about uh, maybe if I tell dad, I'll come back as a hired hand. He'll welcome me back as, as an employee. I can never be his son again. I burn that bridge. Maybe he'll let me work for him. And before he even gets a speech out, dad's wrapped arms around him, gives him the road, gives him the ring, gives him the sandals, all signs, not just of being a, a hired hand, but of a son again, that his sonship is restored. And when they're throwing this party for the lost son and the older brother is, you know, uh, crossing his arms and grumping outside, um, the dad comes to him and says just those things, right? Your, your brother's lost and now is found. He was dead and now is alive again. And that's where the story ends. We never find out what the older brother does. I, it, it's frustrating at a narrative level because you want there to be resolution. And I think that's part of Jesus' genius too, is that he forces us to go, what are you going to do now when you're confronted with a situation that somebody else seems like they're getting the attention, but they need it. They're the one who has the need for it right now. What are you going to do? Are you going to make a fuss about it? Are you going to be upset because it doesn't seem fair to you? Are you going to say, don't all your sons matter, dad? Um, or are you going to be grateful that the lost son is received again? The lost coin has been found again. The lost sheep has been found again. Are you going to make a fuss about it? And Jesus doesn't let me off the hook by giving me, and they all lived happily ever after, bow tied on it. He forces me to ask, what am I going to do? Jesus doesn't even like... He immediately in the Bible, like that's the end of the chapter. And then the next chapter begins with Jesus, like starting, like telling his disciples a whole new set of parables that have like a whole other like reason for existing. So we don't even get Jesus like talking about the meaning of these parables with his disciples. It's just here they are. Yeah. Okay. Now we're moving on to the next lesson. Yeah. And I think purposely so. I mean, like, instead of just treating this like, oh, how come Jesus didn't give us a satisfying ending? I think the intention is there because parables aren't simply fables like Aesop's fables with a simple moral at the end. And you can say, I've mastered the parable because I know the moral at the end. But these these parables keep working on us. They, they keep sort of embedding themselves into our thinking so that in everyday situations, we're forced to ask, man, where am I being the older brother again? Where am I doing this same terrible pattern? Um And what am I going to do in those situations? Am I going to throw a hissy fit because I'm upset that it doesn't seem fair? Or am I going to be 
grateful that God is doing something good for the person who needs it at that moment. I find it interesting when, when the older brother throws his hissy fit, you know, he, he seemingly forgets in that instant that for the last however many months, years, whatever, that the younger brother has been gone, that he's had his father's full attention. Yeah. And I think that's maybe it, that he's, it's not really about fairness. It's he realizes he feels like he's going to lose something that like, oh, mm-hmm. I've had you all to myself. And now we're entering a, an era where, oh, I will have to share you again. Uh, and I've gotten comfortable with being the only person around um, instead of, yeah, I'm glad that uh, my brother is back. Um, mm-hmm. And again, like you can't help but hear the echoes of Jacob and Esau here um, and how that story ends with reconciliation. Even though Jacob doesn't deserve it, uh, they they embrace and they're able to, to forgive. And that's the one thing we're denied in this story is we don't get to see older and younger brother hug uh, and say all is forgiven, all is well. There's the, this this unresolved tension like a like a seventh chord. So uh, let, let me ask this uh, of. of of our collective conversation here. Anytime we're talking about parables, especially ones that are well-known like, like these, uh, there is the temptation of, um, I know these so well, so I already think I know what it means and I don't have to think about it because I already know how the story goes. But are there ways that a story like this uh, speaks to us or, or is especially pertinent for us in, in the, the lives that we're living these days? Is there something important that, that this story, as familiar as it is, means for us? Yeah, I would say at the moment, you know, I've seen the parables referenced on Facebook more than any other parable I've ever seen on Facebook, uh, which is because the Black Lives Matter movement has kind of embraced, especially the parable of the lost sheep Mm -hmm. of, you know, this is why we don't say hashtag all lives matter is because yes, while that is true, it does mean that at the moment we need to focus our energies and resources on finding the lost sheep Uh, that. At this moment in history, as, um, you know, our fellow brothers and sisters, our fellow U.S. citizens have experienced this systemic racism for centuries now. And, you know, lots of people are now standing up and saying enough is enough. Um, We need to say Black Lives Matter because historically our country has said the exact opposite. I, I, I think that's that's a helpful way of describing it. And you, you're right, at least in my experience too, I've seen that particular parable like repeatedly offered as like a, if, if you're one of the 99 sheep, you're going to be upset saying, well, what about us? And the shepherd's response is, you guys, nope, you're not the lost ones at this moment. So you're safe, you're good, that's covered. It's the one that's lost is the, the one that we need to go after. And and it's not even a fault thing necessarily. I mean, like, I'm not sure that sheep willfully get themselves lost. You can get yourself, you know, mm-hmm. uh, entangled in the thorns. You can get yourself in a pit. You can follow this. It's not even to blame that that one sheep that's caused all the problems. For whatever reason, it's lost. And if you're a good shepherd, you're willing to put the other 99, you're going to be fine. Let me go after the one that's lost. And the fact that Jesus, like, reiterates this point with two other parables, the lost coin and the lost son, with the same plot twist, um, seems to suggest Jesus is really underscoring this. Look, if you're the one that's not lost, great, good for you. Of course you matter, but you're safe right now. 
the same way that, um, and this is one of those object lessons or illustrations that's been thrown a lot lately, thrown around a lot lately too. Um, everybody's house matters, but the fire department only goes to the people whose houses are actually on fire at the moment. And if I insist that they start spraying off my house that is not on fire, that's not only not helpful to, to the person whose house is on fire, that's ruining my house that is not currently engulfed in flames. Um, and that it, 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 there's so many ways that we already get this idea. The one who's the one who's bleeding out is the one who needs the attention in the emergency room. The son who's lost is the one you throw the party over. The coin that's found is the one you you gather your friends to celebrate with. Um, that this is maybe a moment where Jesus' parable has immediate direct connections for the priorities and the choices that we make these days. Maybe we should also say along those lines, um, it should not surprise us then if folks are uh, provoked or, or upset by that application of a parable like this because nobody liked it when Jesus told these parables either um, mm-hmm. because often when Jesus would tell a parable like this the respectable religious people would say you've spoken against us you're you're you know you're saying that we've made a bad choice and Jesus would just go yes that's exactly I'm glad you understand you heard what I was saying yes you need to be looking after the folks who are the ones who are lost right now. Um, and this is part of why Jesus gets crucified is Jesus keeps making enemies with the respectable people um, because their wish is a Jesus who will only reinforce what they already think. And Jesus refuses consistently to only reinforce what people already think. I think there's, there's this odd notion that people tend to have about religion and faith and church life is that it's going to make that God is going to make them feel comfortable Mm. and secure and comforted that that is like people's expectations. And so when God does the exact opposite and when God makes us feel uncomfortable and when God pushes us outside of our comfort zone and when God says things like, Hey, at the moment, you don't really matter. This, these other people matter. You need to go and like take care of them because you're good right now. You're, you, you know, you have, you have a roof over your head. You have clothes on your back. You have food on your table. You don't fear for your life. Um, so you're good. So you need to make other people more important than you right now. And like, that's very uncomfortable to hear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that kind of makes, you know, people kind of, we don't know what to do with that because yeah. our expectations are, is that church, God, religion, it's going to make us feel comforted. Yeah. And that's not what Jesus promises. Yeah. It's interesting to me. You're making me think of a, a move like a generation later in the early church when Paul's writing his letters. Um, and so often Paul would be writing to a largely Gentile community, people who weren't Jewish and saying to them things like, you guys are like the, the son who's welcomed in. You guys are the ones who by grace have been welcomed in. You don't have the claim of ancestry. You, you guys have been included. That's a gift of grace. And he asked, I mean, Paul would have to then say to the Judeans, you have to be okay with God letting in these Gentiles because that's how what God's up to. God's including these people. But sometimes then there would be sort of a double reversal. I'm thinking like when Paul writes to the Corinthians and uh, later in the Corinthian correspondence, he's taken a collection up from Gentile Christians so that he can send it back to the church in Judea because they're going through a famine in Jerusalem. And Paul writes to them and says, look, I want you to help support them. You, you, 
you know, are hundreds of miles away from them. I get it. Um, but if you help send money, they can buy food. And Paul says, look, it's not that you guys don't matter, but they're the ones who are in particular need right now. They're the ones who don't have any milk or bread in their grocery store aisles. We could be helping them out and we belong to each other. So at this moment, your calling is to help them out. And hey, you Gentiles, they welcomed you earlier when you were the ones in need of welcome that Paul sort of sees we're constantly supposed to be doing this back and forth to one another. So yeah, in a sense, yes, eventually everybody's needs are taken care of. But at the moment, who are the people who are most essentially in need? Who are the, who are the folks who are most hurting? That's where you spend the energy. Um, and the, the New Testament community got that. Um, and I mean, it was uncomfortable maybe, but they, they understood following Jesus meant those kind of commitments. There, there's another, uh, phrase that my preaching professor was, was fond of saying, which is that good preaching should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted. And I, you know, I think that that is very much true that, you know, if you see somebody in the world who is afflicted, whether it's because they're experiencing injustice or hunger or cold or whatever, you're supposed to comfort them. You're supposed to take care of them. And if people are comforted, you should be poking them a little bit and like getting them to go outside of their comfort zone to help those people who are afflicted. And and in that way, they're going to be uncomforted. Yeah. But yeah. it's, it's a cycle. Yeah. And and the idea that being made uncomfortable doesn't mean you're not loved. That's you know, like it. Sometimes that's exactly how you know that you're loved is that somebody cares enough about you to you know poke you when you need to be poked. You know, mm-hmm. like and and honestly, like I think in 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 any of our individual like personal relationships with friends, the people who you can't have a difficult conversation with are not the people who are your close friends because you're you know you know it might burn the bridge. I'm, I just can't say this to them. But the people who are your like honest lifelong friends and confidants are the people that you can say things that are uncomfortable to, and you can trust that they will hear it in the right spirit. Um, it, it reminds me there's there's a line from the Proverbs. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. I mean, this this idea that the people who know you and love you, and that when there's that grounding of unconditional love, they can say the things you need to hear because they care about you, and that being made uncomfortable is part of the love. That love is not always I get patted on the head uh, for the things that I want to be reinforced in. I mean, who does Jesus call us to care for throughout the Gospels? It's not those who can care for themselves. Right, right, right. You know, we care for the least, the last, and the lost. Um, and, and again, like, it shouldn't surprise us that we're coming to this conclusion if we've been paying attention to any of the stories we've been looking at so far in this, in just this series. Because mm-hmm. there's just, like, again, whenever there's a pattern and the assumption of the, the context or the, the culture is this person is uh, the, the, the chosen one, God has this way of going, okay, but the person who just got rejected, I'm lifting them up. Them up. And sometimes, again, with layers upon layers of reversal, that when um, uh, Ishmael is the one who's scattered and, and sent out, God provides for Ishmael. And then when Isaac is the one who's getting made fun of, Isaac gets the one chosen uh, to be chosen. Then when Ishmael is the one who now gets kicked out, God provides for him as well. We saw that back and forth with Rachel and Leah and with their children, that there is this, at the very moment somebody is the one who's left out or not good enough, they're the one who's lifted up that God is constantly doing this. So it shouldn't surprise us then that at the heart of Jesus teaching is, yep, turns out that's exactly how God operates. Still, Same MO, same as always, lifting up the lowly and um, taking the, the proud down a few pegs. Um, the, 
I think one of the things I really like about a, a conversation thread that we get to have in a series like this is to see that what might what we might think of as just an interesting thought from one story really is a connective thread that runs through the whole of the Bible. And that um, unless you take the time to look at that, you might, you know, oh, there's one story about, you know, God picking the lower over the greater, the younger over the older. No, that's like the recurring theme throughout the Bible. Mm -hmm. And that Jesus says that's not an accident or design flaw. That's how God rules the world, lifting up those who are lowly and taking the proud down a few pegs. And in a world where so many people see the Old Testament and, and the New Testament, this disconnect between like this God of wrath and this God of love, you know, to, to make these connections between the two Testaments and say, no, God is a God of love in the Old Testament too. And there are some times where God gets a little angry, you know, table turning Jesus in right. the New Testament. Um, you know, it's not two separate books that we have just put together and made into one. Like there is, there are connections throughout the whole story of scripture and and maybe that even helps us to see what i want to propose as a unified field theory of love and justice um that uh, that like instead of treating these as opposites that there's mean god in the old testament loving god in the new testament like it's uncomfortable if you're the one who has taken down a few pegs that feels uncomfortable but again that's not because you're unimportant but because somebody else has the need to be lifted up in that mm-hmm. moment and if you're the one who's been stepped on what you need is love to look like lifting you up at that moment. And so, I mean, it's, it's sort of like that, that line I've heard attributed to lots of folks that um, justice is what love looks like in public. That like when we're concerned about the people who are stepped on, that's not being mean. That's what it looks like to love the people who are stepped on. Um, and when that calls me to account in ways that maybe pinch me or make me uncomfortable, it's not because God stopped being loving it's because part of love in a family means we take care of everybody so like around our family dinner table when one of my kids is like hey i would like to have um another piece of pizza the kid who's not just gotten a piece of pizza is like well what about me okay well we can't we take care of you too now everybody's got pizza but they're them getting pizza does not take it away from you there's enough for everybody um and it seems like the at, at its heart the bible is like centered on this idea we don't have to live in competition with one another and hate each other, older versus younger, you know, black versus white, pick whatever ways we do this to each other. But whoever is the one who's going without at this moment, we're called to be especially attentive to their needs in that moment. So um, maybe there's another point for us to say, we surely have not um, dealt with all the worms in this can that we've opened, but maybe that's well and good that there, there needs to be things that leave us uncomfortable too in this conversation. And if parts of where the conversation has gone has left you uh, listening in, feeling provoked or whatever, great, good. I mean, that's part of what these conversations are supposed to do. We invite your feedback always if there's things that you want to share back with us. uh, And maybe there can be grist for further conversations specifically on these kind of subjects. But we've got more stories to look at in further conversations, uh, taking a look at sibling rivalry. So uh, we hope you'll join us further on down the road for more Crazy Faith Talk. See you. Bye.